This is what it is to give without expectation of receiving anything in return. This is what it means to pay it forward. This is what it means to be in the nonprofit sector, to make good things happen for a better world. And it happens one kindness at a time. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Today, we speak with Jennifer Lee Dotson, a veteran fundraising leader whose extraordinary work in philanthropy is only eclipsed by a personal journey that has taken her from an emergency landing in Hawaii to a near-death experience on Mount Everest and virtually everywhere else in between. In our conversation, she recounts the many volunteers, teachers, friends, mentors, and organizations who have helped and inspired her over the years and inspire her to do the same for others today. We begin our conversation talking about her return from a celebration of life. So first, let me ask you about this. Oh, yes. So um, I just ran back to the house um, to sit down and talk with you, Jay. Um, and, uh, I came from a celebration of life. Uh, so a little bit of a, right. A little bit of a sad situation, um, for a family friend. And I was happy to be here to, to, um, take part with my family and all of our friends to celebrate a very beautiful person and, um, and say goodbye and give hugs and all those good things. But one of the things that we do here in Hawaii is we celebrate with flower. Um, and so um, if it's your birthday, if it's your graduation from high school or graduation from college, or if it's a celebration of life, we celebrate with flower. And it's one of the ways we express ourselves. Um, and it's, um, it is very symbolic. Um, uh, the lepo'o, as you see here that I'm wearing, a crown, uh, crown of flowers on the top of my head, also known as a hakule, um, is uh, something that takes quite a bit of work to make. So a uh, labor of love, um, and it is an art uh, to know how to weave um, the flowers uh, so that they will um, they will stay uh, together, um, that they, um, sometimes the flowers that you select um, are representative or symbolic of certain things in our life. Um, so by asking about this, um, I'm actually very happy to share that this is just one way that we, that we express our love, our aloha spirit, um, and you see it everywhere in Hawaii. Um, so let's just say, for example, um, we were at a meeting together. We were at a fundraising meeting together and I walk in um, with uh, a lei or a haku or a lepo'o. You might ask, oh, um, is it your birthday? And I would answer back. Actually, yes, it's my birthday. Or actually, um, I came from a celebration of life like I just did. And it's it's a conversation starter. It's something that I actually want you to ask about. And so um, I'm glad you did. And it happens all the time in Hawaii. Um, 
just the other day, I was in the elevator and somebody stepped in um, with a lei, wearing a lei. And I said, it's your it's your birthday? And they said, yes, it's my birthday. And we all sang happy birthday. Everybody in the elevator started <laughs> singing happy birthday to the church. And it is totally normal. It's like one of the, it's one of the things I love about Hawaii and our culture and the way we find time to celebrate everything, the ups, the downs, the happy, the sad, um, but mostly the happy. So you selected these flowers yourself. Actually, it was um, friends of ours. Um, they had made the hakule, the lepo'o, um, and we are all wearing it. Um, we all wore it uh, during this um, during this ceremony and during the, um, uh, uh, the during the reception. Um, and I'll probably wear it for the rest of the day too. Um, it's it's just it's just something that we do here in Hawaii. And the funny thing is, <laughs> the funny thing is, here I am. Sitting with my headsets in and my lepo'o on top of it. Um, and I just feel like this is the most normal thing that could have ever like happened. Like, here I am talking with Jay Frost with my haku and my Bluetooth headsets. And here we are doing our conversation. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> like it was, you know, like it like it's a Monday. It's like it's a Monday after Thanksgiving. Like it's a Monday before Giving Tuesday. <laughs> We're wearing our hakule. <laughs> this sounds like something you've known for your whole life. Mm, yes, I'm born and raised in Hawaii. I was made in Vietnam. I was oh. made in Vietnam. And my mom, very, very pregnant, didn't quite make it over the Pacific Ocean. And the plane had to make an emergency landing in Hawaii. And here I am, born and raised in Hawaii. I always tell her, I said, Mom, thank you for giving birth in Hawaii because you could have given birth anywhere else. I actually, I actually, to this day, I don't know where that plane was headed. Maybe California, maybe Oklahoma, maybe Kansas. I have no idea. But I told my mom, thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving birth to me in Hawaii. And she says, actually, no, thank you. Thank you for telling the world that you had to come out at that point in time over the airspace of Hawaii. So here I am. Yeah. Wow. So am. an emergency landing. Um, emergency and and it, it, so once born there, you, your family stayed, you and your mother stayed forever. Yeah. So, um, so my family um, unfortunately had to leave, you know, the war torn country of uh, Vietnam during the fall of Saigon. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, in in many respects, very fortunate to um, have the families stay together and and stay in Hawaii, where I know from talking with many of my peers, um, many uh, other families that have had to leave Vietnam during the war, um, families were separated and some, you know, had a very difficult time in reunification. But our family in Hawaii, um, we were fortunate to be together. Now, um, when my mom, my dad, they landed, um, didn't speak the language, uh, didn't have jobs, didn't have housing. Um, my mom tells me actually that my first um, bassinet, my first little baby crib, um, was the top drawer 
the top drawer of a dresser drawer. And so they had just put like some blankets to make it a little soft. And that was um, that was my bassinet. Um, so from, you know, um, very, very humble beginnings. And um, what what happened um, uh, as I grew up? Um, my my mother, my father, my maternal grandmother, my uh, we say popo in in Chinese. Um, so my first language is um, Cantonese Chinese. My popo, they always told me that there were hundreds, you know, hundreds of of nameless, faceless people, volunteers, maybe. Um, we don't know who helped us, uh, helped my family, helped my mom um, fill out an application for um, housing, helped my dad fill out an application for um, his first job, um, helped my um, family with food and clothing, helped me with little baby clothes and, and, and baby food, um, formula and baby bottles. Hundreds of people. We'll never know who they are because it's not like they um, issued us, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, paperwork that said you owe us back for all of this help that you received. Um, so I was always instilled from a very young age that there is a debt that our family can never repay from all these people that have helped us without expecting anything in return. And I think that's how I honestly learned philanthropy by experiencing it firsthand and by also hearing about it um, from my parents. These are people that never expected anything in return by helping our family. Otherwise they would have like maybe written their name and said, and by the way, when you can pay us back the $100, um, please do so as soon as possible. But they never did. I, I don't know to this day who these people are. And so um, my maternal grandmother, who never spoke um, English, um, would take me every week to the temple to volunteer. And we would make food and serve food. Um, most of the time, I would eat the food because I was always hungry as a child. Uh, actually, I'm always hungry this day i love to eat i love to eat so so um we would volunteer um my mom my dad um always whenever there was an opportunity to volunteer or lend a hand we were always um there to sign up to be uh to be you know there first in line to um, help out where we could because we didn't have a lot of money, right? We didn't have a lot of money to give back and pay back, but we knew that this was like something that um, we need needed to do, but could do as well. So I really feel like that's how I first learned about philanthropy from a very young age. And whoever you are out there, I don't know who you are, but thank you. Thank you for what you do. And I just, I wouldn't be the person that I am today without your help. So you're out there. I know you are. And one day I'll meet you. Actually, I do have a story about that. I did meet one person who did have an influence me. I don't know if we'll get there, but if you're interested, maybe we can, tell me. we could tell that story. Really? Yeah, please. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, 
Okay, so um, I went to um, I went to a, a little local preschool, right? Nothing, nothing too interesting about it. Um, but um, in this preschool, I was um, I didn't speak English, and so um, I always had a hard time um, communicating with other little kids, um, uh, teachers, and things like that. And let's just say. I would lash out um, in my frustration as a young child, and I would, I would hit, um, and I would, you know, I'd swing my little fist. I was just so angry all the time. So um, I would cry a lot, and, and uh, during nap time, I would stage my protest uh, by not napping. You could possibly say. You could possibly say that this is a totally normal little kid thing to do, but I don't know what's going through my little brain. I saw all the other little kids napping at preschool and it was a huge open area, right? It was a huge open area and every little child had a little mat just be there, just like wreaking havoc. I go and I would make as much noise as possible with the wooden blocks and I would get into the, you know, other toys and fling them. Around. And so the teachers, um, one teacher in particular, was always um, very patient with me. And instead of like scolding me and putting me in timeout um, or punishing me, she would channel my angry energy into something positive. So. She would take me aside and while everyone napped, she would teach me English. And so we went through the alphabet. We went through, you know, simple things, you know, um, A is for apple, B is for banana, C is for cherry. I, I actually don't know, but I got one-on-one -on -one time, special one-on-one -on -one time with this teacher. And I can't tell you, but I know how I felt as a child to get that special one-on-one -on -one time. I felt like I was the center of the universe. And I went from being like this angry, hitting, fighting, noisy child to a child who just like, I loved going to school and I love nap time because everybody else went to sleep and I got my special one-on-one -on -one time. Um, so, Fast forward um, to when I worked for the Muscular Dystrophy Association and one of my first, you know, nonprofit jobs, um, I started volunteering for MDA and then I became an employee for MDA. But one of the first um, projects that I had, it was a special project that MDA um, had called Hopathon. And the Hopathon was a fundraiser, but it was also an educational program to teach young children about acceptance of other young children that had disabilities. Um, we knew, we knew in the work that we were doing with neuromuscular diseases that some children, um, uh, their, their disease progressed faster, you know, and um, uh, they were being fitted for wheelchairs, well, leg braces, um, uh, walkers, uh, and even wheelchairs at the age of four or five, preschool level. And so one of the things that inevitably happens, you know, when a child is different, um, they get teased, right? And you're nodding 
saying like, you know, this, right? I think this is, you know, everyone has experienced this in some way, shape or form. Um, and so I had uh, the special, wonderful job to um, roll this Hopathon program out throughout the state of Hawaii. And I love this program so much because I loved being back in that preschool environment that gave me so much joy because I remembered loving going to preschool and having my special one-on-one time. Um, and I feel like preschool teachers have that magical ability to make that, create that, that wonderful love for education at such an early age. Um, so in uh, doing my job, I wanted to be the best at my job. And so I said to myself, I said, I think I could really use some extra training and education on how to deliver this program um, to preschool age children by taking some extra classes in early education. So the community college um, uh, had, you know, some continuing education and um, I signed up. And here I was back in, you know, back in my, in my adult, back in the classroom again. And my first day, my first day, I had my my pen and my notebook. I was ready. I was sitting in the front row because I was back in school. I love school. Um, and I had, you know, my folders all nicely labeled. <laughs> there is something special about going back to school as an adult, right? You just have this maturity level. You're like super organized. Um, and I'm sitting there waiting for the lesson to start or the lecturer to walk in and the door opens. And Jay, I kid you not, it was like a lightning bolt hit me. I was immediately transported back to my five-year-old self because in through that college classroom door walked my in my preschool teacher and how did I know it was my preschool teacher I hadn't seen her since I was like five years old right she always wore her hair in a very long single braid down her back and it was really long I mean it wasn't just oh you know down past your shoulders no it was really long almost down to her ankles along. And here she is. Now the hair was not jet black anymore. It was salt and pepper, but it was still that single braid. And she walked in and I'm staring at her, right? With my bug eyes. Speechless. Uh, my pen and my paper. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Probably like, she's like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with this person? She looks at me and she's like, Jennifer? And I'm just like, what? She's like, you look the same. She remembered me, Jay. Maybe because I was such a troublemaker. (laughs) (laughs) I was such a troublemaker. That's why she remembered me. Um, But I'm almost crying telling you this story because that's the kind of impact 
that a human being can have on another human being. Here she was like, okay, I'm not going to tell you how old I was at the time, maybe 30 years old. So 30 years later, still dedicating her life work, her time, her energy to doing what she did best in early education. I found out later, you know, because I mean, she became my professor. I found out later that, yeah, not only was she a preschool teacher, but she was a professor of early education so that she could teach other preschool teachers to be preschool teachers. It's like amazing. It really is. I mean, the full circle of what we do. And I feel like we get to experience that firsthand every day in our nonprofit work. And we're so blessed and so lucky and fortunate to have that there's no other job there's nothing there's nothing else that anyone can do for their profession or their work except to see that full circle come around and around so many times but and that's, I have so that's many also, stories like that yeah that's also a choice yeah. though i mean it's a choice yes. you made and yes. so that you had that early experience that was so formative for you. Obviously, yeah. your family um, made its commitment. That was important to you. And then um, you had that experience, which helped to shape you. But later, it sounds like a lot of first generation families that I know, people go off in different directions, but you came back to this work. But first you went, I mean, you were a Punahou grad, right? And then you oh, went yeah. to Georgetown. <laughs> <laughs> and then the LSE. So I don't know the sequence exactly, but that sounds like a track to become, I don't know, a business person, an economist, not necessarily oh, yeah. to go back and, you know, yeah. the muscular dystrophy yeah. association. So yeah. how did you go from that young child who was trying <laughs> to figure out where she fit to, you know, this woman who went out into the world mm. and then returned to Hawaii? Yeah. So I do have to say, I, so I giggle when you say Punahou School, because this is something that, you know, um, here in Hawaii, there's there's an intense rivalry, right, of high schools. And when you ask people, so where are you from? We usually, <laughs> we're usually referring to like what high school you went to. It's not like I would meet Jay Frost and be like, Hi, Jay, what high school did you go to? It's a very Hawaii thing, just like wearing this hakule, just lepo'o, is a very Hawaii thing. But even on the mainland, when you meet other people from Hawaii and you're like, where are you from? <laughs> we usually are referring to, you know, our high school. And more often than not, um, I say, oh, you know, I'm from Punahou, the same school that President Obama graduated from. <laughs> pause, pause. <laughs> But not at the same time. <laughs> not at the same time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so here's an interesting thing. Uh, um, so the year I was uh, graduating senior at Punahou School, uh, my dearest, dearest teacher, my mentor, um, my favorite teacher, who also then became my mentor, even after I graduated, Doc Berry. Doc Berry had this amazing idea. I felt it was amazing. It was quite controversial at the time. Had this amazing idea that every Punahou 
student that graduated shall graduate with a um, requirement to perform community service. And our senior year was the first year that they were going to roll this program out. Now, why was it controversial, right? We're a K through 12 prep school and a lot was riding on where everybody was going to go to college. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's something that we take quite a bit of pride in. Um, and to roll out something, you know, so dramatic um, our senior year ruffled a lot of feathers. Now, I, I was like, this is the greatest idea, Doc Barry. Um, and so I immediately opened the paper, you know, back then, right? Jay, you, you know this. <laughs> we opened the paper to the classified ad section. And there was a help wanted, right? Help wanted, right? And there was an ad that I found for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Um, <laughs> you, you see how this connects? It was a graduation requirement, Jay. <laughs> and I'm like, I got my pen and I circled, I circled, help wanted, Muscular Dystrophy Association, called the number. They said, great, come in, fill out the application, interview, and, um, and, um, and volunteer. That was my first interaction with the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And I have to say, unequivocally, unequivocally to this day, I have seen a lot of different volunteer programs, many of them good, some of them bad. But Muscular Dystrophy Association from way back in the day, <laughs> from when I was when I was a young high school student, had an amazing volunteer intake program and volunteer training program and volunteer management program. And I see to this day that there are some organizations that struggle with those different pieces, right? Volunteer intake, volunteer training. Ah, who has the time to train these volunteers? They're only going to be with us for a week or two. Some of them are only one-off volunteers. So who has the time for this? And then volunteer management. MDA, kudos to you for all those years ago, making such a great impression on me. I became a volunteer. I stuck with it. I stuck with it from when I was 16 years old as a volunteer to the point where I became an employee and to this day still donate. I still donate to MDA because it is something so near and dear to my heart. And um, as fundraisers, as fundraisers, we speak a lot about the interconnectedness between volunteering and philanthropy. Some of our some of our best donors come to us because they are first giving to our organization with their time and their talent. And then they are growing their giving through actual financial gifts. I have to say without Without a doubt, I think the Muscular Dystrophy Association does it the best. And 
I mean, continuously from when I was 16 years old, I have never missed an opportunity to either volunteer or give to that organization. And then you were there and again, at <laughs> you were finishing that, but then I, you decided to I never to finished leave. my story. Well, no, no. Then you went across the country. I mean, you, yeah. You, you left, yeah. Well, so Bali. I graduated. You live in one of the most wonderful places in the world. Let's just be frank about that. It is not only a place that welcomed you, but it, it seems like the spirit of Aloha welcomes everyone. At least it feels that way. Yeah. So, but then you left. <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? Why did you leave? Yeah. So, um, okay. So, I, I, good news is I completed my community service requirement and, um, I graduated. Um, but in the, in the application, in the application, um, process, um, here's another funny story. It's not, not exactly a story that, like, maybe many would be proud of, but I'm just going to, to tell it to you anyway because it's so darn funny um maybe it's a lesson in like you never know what'll happen to you but a lot of things have happened to me possibly because um i'm not the smartest person in the room but maybe i'm just blessed and fortunate <laughs> so i um i am attending this you know k through 12 prep school and um, there's a lot of emphasis and there's a lot of stress placed on um, on students like where you're going to go to school and you have to go to the best school. And so um, we're we have um, college counselors. Right. We have uh, an actual like requirement that we have to um, uh, um, spend time every week uh, leading up to our, you know, our our college um, application and selection meeting with a counselor to make sure that we're staying on track. And so um, on my um, on my appointment date and time, I like totally forgot. I totally spaced. I don't know what I was doing. I don't know. Maybe there was too much sun that day in Hawaii and I like baked my brain. I, was, I don't know. I don't know. I was, Or I was just being a typical teenager, you know, like talking with my friends and I looked down and oh my gosh, I'm late for my college counseling appointment and I'm running. I'm running to the office and outside of the college counselor's office, there's um, racks right? Rows and rows, racks of brochures. Um, and they're, you know, mostly for display. But here I am running very late to my appointment and I grab three or four <laughs> brochures. Whichever one looked good, right? One of them had a very nice picture on the front. So kudos to every marketing person out there. Marketing matters. <laughs> Marketing matters when you're a high school student applying for university and you're late to your appointment. So I grabbed three or four of my brochures and I plopped them down on the college counselor's desk. And I said, here are the three colleges I will apply to. Right. My declaration. I am so prepared. You had no idea I was late. <laughs> so the college counselor peers down at these three brochures and takes one and says, mm, 
takes the other and, and takes the third one and goes, well, we can throw this one in the trash because you're not getting into this school. <laughs> Proceeds to let, put it in the trash. And I was like, what? <laughs> Reached over and grabbed it out of the trash can. I'm like, wait a minute. This one happens to be my favorite university. I think we have this like troublemaker, like <laughs> troublemaker, like maybe like theme going on here. So I mean, I was totally making that up. I mean, I was late for my appointment and it was because somebody told me no. I was like dug in my heels and I was like, no, that's the one I want to go to. And the college counselor said, good luck with that. And I said, great. Thank you very much. Are we done here? <laughs> I mean, gosh, I will say that I hope my daughter never sees this video, Jay, because number one, that's like really bad behavior. That's just rude. <laughs> like, I don't want her to know. I don't want to know that I applied to someplace because number one, the picture was nice on the brochure. And number two, somebody told me I couldn't go there. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that is a good story. Needless to say, I went home that night. I filled in the application and turned it in. Um, and it was for Georgetown University. And it was early decision. I had no idea what early decision was at the time. I had no idea. I had no idea that it was early decision binding, by the way. And so um, I got in in December. That was the only school I applied to. I, because, I mean, that's the rules, right? That's the rules. You Once you apply to an early decision binding school, you got to go. <laughs> Can you imagine did, if it was your, any other? Uh, what did your guidance counselor have to say? <laughs> he had, he was, so, okay. All right. So here's the end of the story. So I put on the Georgetown University sweater i have it to this date my daughter is actually wearing it like she thinks it's the best sweater it's like this gray georgetown sweater with like black print across the front in huge letters this is georgetown so i wore it to school the day after i got my acceptance letter and i marched myself into the college counselor's office and i said told you so he looks up he looks up from his desk and goes Excuse me. <laughs> I don't remember. There were 400 students in my graduating class. Okay. It was like, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> what a letdown, man. I mean, like, I was like hoping to have like some vindication, like, oh my gosh, you were right. I should have believed in you from the start. Go get them, Jennifer. <laughs> Maybe that was his and, technique, you know, oh, drop, yeah, yeah. drop one in the trash and that's the one they all go to. So now that I have a 14 year old daughter, I'm beginning to think you're right, Jay, because anytime I'm like looking over my shoulder and whispering because I'm, is she around? Is she listening to me? Anytime that I express any sort of interest in something that she does it's like immediate like 
opposite, right? It's she does the opposite. So yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, maybe that college counselor really knew, really knew their stuff. Well, the next time you say that Georgetown sweatshirt isn't for you, you'll know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I should say something like, you know, daughter, I really don't think Harvard is for you. I don't think you'll get in. Mm. <laughs> All right. So you went to Georgetown. You went to LSE. Did that go yeah. sequentially? Did you go right from one to the other? What? Yeah. Well, so what? That's happened? London for those yeah, who aren't I paying know. attention. I, know. <laughs> I didn't even know where it was. So okay, no, I moving. Yeah. And so, um, so the early decision binding program that I uh, was accepted to was the, was the School of Foreign Service. So for all intents oh, sure. and purposes, yeah, yeah, um, it's a pre-vocational school, right? And so, um, oh my gosh, if I have any advice for, you know, the graduating seniors, don't take 12 AP classes like Jennifer did, because I like killed myself and took all AP courses thinking I was going to graduate in two years or less, right? Well, with Georgetown and their pre-vocational program, no AP courses count because you must follow their educational track. I didn't know that. Dang it. Um, 2020 hindsight. Well, so I went to Georgetown and I was very blessed, very fortunate to have an amazing professor, many amazing professors. Don't get me wrong. Some professors that I'm still in contact with to today because they've been such mentors to me and, um, great influencers of my educational career. So one of the professors that I had, I had the great fortune of studying under Professor Madeline Albright. And so studying under Professor Madeline Albright, um, she was such a trailblazer. She really, I mean, she was so ahead of her time. And uh, I- This was after her uh, service as secretary. Prior. Okay. Prior. Now I'm dating myself. Now people are going to Google what year did Madeleine Albright become the first female secretary of state? First female secretary of state. Yeah. My gosh, this is my professor. And this is a professor who really looked out for us. She knew in her mind that this. So the Foreign Service was very much still dominated, right, by males. And, um, you know, we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, access so much nowadays. But back then, Professor Albright was writing the book on DEIA before it even existed. I At least that is how I feel. And she really made it a point to encourage us, um, females, people of color, um, to stick, stick to the plan, stick to the plan and um, take the foreign service exam and enter into public service. Um, well, well, <laughs> well, the year I graduated, again, everybody's going to Google this. 
What year was there the government shutdown? <laughs> What year was there a hiring freeze in the Department of State? That was the year I graduated when we when the economy crashed and there was a full hiring freeze in the Department of State. So my graduating class, many of them, many of them ended up um, uh, working on Wall Street. <laughs> I could have been retired by age 30 if I worked on Wall Street like many of my classmates. But what fun is that? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I had actually, I had taken the foreign service exam a year early, um, just by accident, totally by accident. Um, again, not smart, just lucky. And so I ended up joining the foreign service, um, but one of very few um, folks uh, from my graduating class that did so just because of circumstances, right? I mean, the government wasn't hiring um, and the state department definitely had, you know, a hiring freeze indefinite, right? We had no idea how long. So you graduate, you got to get a job. <laughs> and so um, I ended up, um, I ended up uh, uh, having the good fortune to work in Hong Kong. Um, uh, Cantonese is my um, native language, my mother tongue. And I was also there uh, prior to the handover. And so amazing milestone moment. Now everybody's Googling, what year was the Hong Kong handover? <laughs> Ah, oh, I'm. I guess hopefully I don't look as old as I seem. Um, it's a good filter. Hopefully we have a good zoom filter today. Good lighting, good zoom filter always helps with that. Um, but in any case, what an amazing experience because I was able to um, work and um, experience. Um, living abroad, living internationally, living and working in a place that my father um, grew up. He is originally from Hong Kong. And, um, and, and before the handover as well, which was just this massive geopolitical um, milestone. I mean, all eyes in the world um, were on, was on Hong Kong. And I was there for it. So yeah, after the Hong Kong handover, um, U.S. government um, wanted to retain, smartly so, um, um, our strong, positive relationship um, with our uh, Western European counterparts. And so I was part of a team that then was selected to go to London. And I worked at the London Embassy um, after the handover. And so um, I had the good fortune to also work at the London Embassy. This was the London Embassy um, in Mayfair. Beautiful. Oh, my goodness. Beautiful London Embassy when it was still located in Mayfair. And I also attended classes at the London School of Economics. Um, so what an amazing time to be a young woman um, working 
in these geopolitical um, spheres of influence. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Now you were there, but then you didn't you relocate to New York or at least or did you go to Hawaii? What? what? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was engaged to be married. Hmm. And um, unfortunately, I lost my fiance in the 9-11 attacks. And um, that uh, that experience um, left me brokenhearted and um, also brought me into contact with the volunteers and the and um, the amazing team of the American Red Cross um, at the Family Reunification Center. And so um, what I had to learn the hard way, unfortunately, is that being engaged to be married does not count as next of kin. And so um, being there searching for an answer um, I um, felt very out of place, out of place. But it was, it really was, it was the volunteers, the compassion and the caring and the deep just love um, that these volunteers were extending to people like me that um i mean it was it was everything i could do just to get out of bed you know every day um and crying every day and not knowing and i mean just like what do you do how do you how do you even begin you know and it was the volunteers of the American Red Cross that um, always welcomed me. Finally, they gave me like a job. So this is another like, I don't know, this is another funny thing about our nonprofit sector is like you hang around enough, <laughs> you hang around enough. <laughs> I'll give you, something Just give to you do. a job. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you something to do. Like, hey. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, um, uh, I, worked at the family reunification center as a volunteer and um a lot of times people like me would come in and they would be searching and they would scribble a name on a piece of paper and i would take and so i would take these pieces of paper and i would like hold on to them and i would like try you know i like would file them you know not really but i'm going to tell you what i did so i had like tons and tons like dozens and hundreds of these little papers like sometimes people would just like literally like just tear off a piece of paper right um or find something like crumpled napkin and write can you please help me right and i would take all and so i started to tape them onto the wall and i would you know sometimes i would find a name um a duplicate as we say in our database uh our database language I would find a duplicate and then I would take that name and put it next to each other. And then, oh, and I would, you know, find patterns. Sometimes there were, you know, phone numbers. So I would start to group them. This was my rudimentary 
this is my rudimentary database. And from there, I started to actually inputting inputting names and numbers into a database and grouping them and forming queries, right? As we say in our database language, all my data nerds out there, I love you um, because data is power, data is knowledge. And so I would start to create queries, right? And pull reports. Um, and I, I'll tell you, I started working as a volunteer for the American Red Cross, and then I became an employee. So now two times I started as a volunteer for an organization and then became an employee for them. So um, there you have it. But um, maybe that's the good that comes from the bad or the silver lining that comes from the dark clouds. So that's that my current bad story you were working with them in hawaii so did you go yeah well that was many years later that was many oh, years okay. later no that was many years later i came back to hawaii i came back to hawaii a sad and broken person you know i didn't want to do anything i didn't want to get out of bed i wanted to just like cry all day long and um you know my mom sort of kicked me in the butt and said, ah, I'm tired of you just like crying your eyes out. Go do something. Go volunteer. So I started volunteering again. Volunteering actually helped save my life because it literally gave me something to do. Um, I felt like maybe I, you know, what a failure, right? You know? this like amazing international career, this trajectory. Um, and you're not the first person to ask, right? You're like, well, what if you stuck with it? Do you think you could have been ambassador by now? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, like maybe, who knows? But that's not, that wasn't in the cards for me, right? That was in the cards for me. I came back to Hawaii, a broken person, crying every day not wanting to get out of bed every day, but volunteering helped get me out of bed, helped me help give me something to do. So you, you began this conversation talking about the celebration of life. Mm -hmm. And I know that at that time, people were still looking like you were looking mm -hmm. for their loved ones. It was a long time coming before they could do that there in New York. Mm -hmm. But what was it like returning to Hawaii? Because it sounds like the kind of community where people are there for you when you're ready. Yeah. 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 It was awkward for me. Like, you know, I didn't want to have to explain to everybody. Like I didn't even want to go to the grocery store because I like would have to explain to people. I didn't want to go to, I didn't want to go outdoors just in case I bump into some, and in Hawaii, inevitably you're going to bump into like 10 people, you know, whether it's your neighbors or your mom's friends or, you know, what have you. Um, but it was very awkward and I had a hard time, you know, um, coming back to Hawaii and finding myself again, finding my place in the world again. Um, but I think, I, I think looking back, volunteering and the nonprofit sector gave me that purpose. 
in life and gave me that that thing bigger than myself so that I didn't have to explain my maybe my personal circumstance. I could just talk about what I was doing, what I was volunteering for, or the organization that I was supporting, right? And um, yeah, I think that's I think that's what many of us find true in in the work that we do in philanthropy. It, um, you didn't talk at all about being an athlete <laughs> in your young life, so I don't know if you were. But uh, one of the things that's remarkable about everything you just said is that you went from probably being understandably, you know, um, just rolled up and not ready to visit the world for a bit, uh, despite your mother's wishes that you do so, um, to volunteering and finding, you know, refinding and remaking your place in the world, but then climbing Mount Everest. So <laughs> how in the world did that happen? Yeah. Well, so so I did tell you that I didn't speak English as a first language, so I had to learn English. So my first language is actually, or well, let's see, my first language is is Cantonese. My second language was not English. I tell people that my second language, my first my first learned language is sports. And the reason why as a young child is you know, people are like talking to you and you all you see is like mouth moving and you're like, what? What is this person trying? And they're like pointing and they're like gesturing. Well, so in sports, as a young child, soccer, right? Soccer, there's a ball. And everybody's like pointing and kicking. And you're like, got it. Ball. That way winning <laughs> right that was my language super simple to understand super simple to follow um and so i've always loved sports i've always loved sports and so i love running i love soccer i love baseball i love softball um yeah but it's one thing to do these sports it's another to yeah. do iron man there and in, in yeah. Hawaii. It's another yeah. thing to climb Mount Everest. Yeah. So yeah. How, how did you decide this is this is the moment I'm going to do those things? Yeah. How in the world did you did you accomplish? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a um a marathon group, a friend, uh, a group of friends. And um uh, when we lived together, we'd always run marathons together. And that was like so much fun. Oh, so much fun. Right. And uh, eventually, you know, as as young as young people do, you move away. And so we always said to each other, no matter where in the world we're living, once a year, once a year, we will meet for a marathon together, just like old times. And so this marathon group, we would meet and we ran all all the greatest marathons. I mean, it was a great way to also see the world. Um, and it was always one person's turn, the next person's turn to choose where we would run the next marathon. And so um, one year, um, one of the gals, um, she says, well, we are going to run this year. Ha ha ha, Mount Everest. And we're like, huh? Eh? I didn't know they had a marathon. 
And she's like, they don't. <laughs> but we're going to do it. <laughs> so, so that literally is how we all gathered. Um, uh, and we met in Kathmandu, Nepal, to start our marathon. There was no marathon, Jay. There was no, it was literally like it was one person's idea that the year we were going to meet up, we were going to climb Mount Everest together. And I almost died. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, like, you can't train for a 18,000 climb up a mountain at sea level. <laughs> no. No. So what, what happened? <laughs> oh, what happened was I almost died. I literally almost died. So um, uh, you arrive, you arrive in, you know, in Kathmandu and it's all very exciting, right? Everybody who is either starting their trek or ending their trek is in Kathmandu. And so maybe it was just the um, excitement of it all at first. I, I didn't realize um, um, that I was already at altitude and kind of already starting to feel sick. Um, and again, I am born and raised at sea level. So this is nothing I could have ever anticipated. No, but there, I, perhaps, perhaps if I was smarter, again, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but perhaps if I was smarter, I would have known these things, but I did it. And so, um, so the first day of our trek, we arrive in Lukla, which is, um, a uh, tiny little town, right? I mean, it's just basically day one. And at Lukla, you're already at altitude. And I was stumbling around like a drunk person. And again, a lot of young people, right? A lot of young people. They just chalked it up to, I guess she had a rough night <laughs> last night. <laughs> Right. They probably thought I was hungover or something. And I was literally, I was like, I lit. my vision was blurred. I was sick to my stomach. I was stumbling because my balance was off. And um, the group I was with, I just like, right. I mean, they're, they're all, we're all in very good shape, but nothing like nothing could have prepared me for this. So um, I was so far behind that it was kind of annoying um to the rest of the group um and as a, the harder i tried the harder i struggled um to catch up the group the sicker i became to the point where i was literally like crawling on my hands and knees and one of the lo locals you know one of the sherpas actually looked at me and and kind of mentioned I, I think she's altitude sick and everybody laughed. They're like, nobody gets altitude sickness. Like this is like, this is nothing, right? This is like day one of the trick lady. Um, and so I, so he broke me off from the rest of the group. And I was like, no, 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 no. I need to stay with my friends. I was like, no, no, no. I need to stay with my friends. He broke me off from the group and, took me lower down the mountain and it was like amazing it was like i immediately was like 
what did you just do? Like, I, like, I'm cured. Okay, now I can go. He's like, no, you're going down, right? You're going down the mountain. They're going up the mountain. You're going down the mountain. And I was like, no, right? So, um, unfortunately, um, uh, the start of my Everest trek uh, was um, <laughs> quite disappointing, but not so much so because he ended up taking me to his cousin's um, little, you know, little little shack um and the cousin married couple with three young boys um and he probably said something on the long lines of like can you just babysit this tourist until i come back for her you know um so they didn't speak english i didn't speak nepalese and he left me there and um I became their sort of like adopted daughter. And like, I was always kind of looking around to see where I could help out. So I would like sweep. Um, and I always saw the, the mom um, making the same thing every day. Um, and she would be stirring, right? She'd be stirring, stirring. So I'm like, oh, I can stir, I can stir. So I'd help her, I'd stir. Um, and, um, it was, uh, potato mush, by the way. And that's what we ate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, <laughs> potato mush. And, um, there was also, um, yak milk tea. So I helped make yak milk tea, um, delicious, by the way, if you ever have the opportunity to have yak milk tea, I highly recommend. <laughs> and so I would sweep, I would stir potato mush um i would help make hot yak milk tea um and um and then another thing i did was i would tutor the three young boys in english they would teach me nepalese and i would teach them english and we would um we had set up a little table outside um and it was just a walkway right it was a walkway past their past their doorway and um you know, tons of people would traverse by. It was mostly like Tibetan nuns um, as they were just, you know, they were traversing. And more more often than not, they would just sit there and they would just like look curiously at us. And we had quite the gathering every day. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, so there was like kind of like this. So there's a walkway and I sat up a table and then, um, uh, Along the walkway, there's sort of like rocks. And so the Tibetan nuns would sit there on the rocks and just peer at us, you know, maybe, maybe like wondering what's going on, maybe kind of listening in what's happening. And so um, I told the three boys, I said, let's let's make our own restaurant. Right. And so um, I taught them like what a menu is. And so we created a menu and we wrote right on the menu three things on the menu <laughs> <laughs> potato mush <laughs> a yak milk tea <laughs> or nothing <laughs> three things <laughs> well i have a feeling that was your last major mountain adventure uh or is that true no you're right <laughs> Well, it didn't stop you from the marathons, either the actual <laughs> running marathons and ultra marathons or the marathon you've been going through for 
the rest of your career. So uh, <laughs> we kind of jumped over uh, the whole work that you've been doing in the sector, but it's there's been a lot of it. And well, it's been a joy. So it's been a joy. Uh, now it's American Red Cross, right? And National mm-hmm. Kidney uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Classy Fundraise Up, et cetera, et cetera. But working with lots and lots of organizations, yeah, um, including a lot of work with AFP. Uh, oh yes, I and, love AFP. Well, and you're so when I talked to you the other day, of course, it was in the middle of an AFP conference. So you're you're very <laughs> involved in bringing all this stuff together. What's that what's, was so uh, funny, I, by the way. Was that was so funny. <laughs> Here I am uh, on a Zoom call with you, and you're watching Mike Geiger and Bridget and Nathan Chappelle speak at our AFP Aloha Chapter National Philanthropy Day. And it was so funny because you're like, oh, my gosh, those are my friends. (laughs) What are they doing in Hawaii? I was like, well, they're here for yeah. The conference, right? Why, why wouldn't they want to be there is, is my question. So you've been involved with AFP for a long time now, right? I mean, for, mm-hmm. okay. So what's, what's for you the, the most important part of that work now? Yeah, I, I tell the, the same story all the time. Um, so when I had fallen into fundraising, um, uh, the first the the first thing that I did um, when I became executive director of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, I had never had a job like this before. And I was like, do people go to school to become executive directors? Right. You're shaking your head. <laughs> well, back then, no. Fast forward to now. Fast forward to now, and there's actually, right, it is quite impressive that you could actually go to the Lily School and get you know, a degree in philanthropy. Um, Well, back then, like, for the most part, many of us fell into fundraising or fell into our nonprofit positions by accident. Mm -hmm. That was certainly true for me. I fell into it by accident. Um, And I really, um, I I searched for a way to um, be better at my craft. And um, so I, I kind of asked around, is there, you know, are classes I can take? And they said, oh, maybe check the community college. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that one time I went to the community college, just like the story I told you, right? When I went back for an early education um, degree, um, I was like, there must be something. And so the community college, I went to the registrar's office and I said, I think you have a nonprofit management certificate. Can I sign up for that? And they said, where did you see that? I was like, well, it was in the pamphlet, the pamphlet. And they're like, give me that. Let me see that. They're like, this is from like three years ago. We don't offer that course anymore. Nobody signed up for it. So it was like a total failure. Like nobody signed up. Nobody paid for it. So we dropped that class. I was like, no. No, you're kidding me. Like, I will sign up for it. They're like, you really can't build a program around one student. Sorry. <laughs> That's how it works. I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is terrible, right? So I really didn't know, like, where to go to learn about being an executive director of a nonprofit organization. And one day, I had seen an announcement um, 
and it was for uh uh, something called NPD. I didn't know what NPD was. Now I do. Now I know what NPD stands for, National Philanthropy Day. But at the time, I was like, what is this? But it looks good. It's an all-day conference about nonprofits, about fundraising. I was like, that's what I need, right? And so I went, and I was amazed. I like, my jaw probably hit the ground, right? wow, there are like 300 people in this hotel ballroom and they all do nonprofit fundraising or nonprofit work. This is fantastic. These are my people. That was where I absolutely, Jay, absolutely, I fell in love with AFP at my very first NPD conference. And that love has never stopped. And NPD has been very special to me because of that, that origin story. Well, so met all these amazing people who surrounded me with support and education and training. And um, one, um, one person I met there um, uh, became my mentor. Um, her name is Sanai Tokumura. Uh, Sanai, I did not know this, but Sanai is one of the very few ACFRE in the world. What an amazing honor and what an amazing way that she has dedicated her career to be an advanced CFRE, a fundraiser in our in in our in in our sector. She became my mentor i met her at that first afp npd um and she was always there to help me answer my questions um support me and had also recommended that i join this thing called afp what's afp i don't, I don't know what it's a acronym for association of fundraising professionals i had no idea um and so she had encouraged me to sign up for membership. Well, I looked at the price tag and I was like, ooh, that's quite expensive, right? And, and this is, again, this is something that we still talk about to this day, right? AFP membership is expensive and we have to think of ways to make AFP membership more accessible and more inclusive um, and equitable to all all fundraisers because there are still there are still fundraisers in our sector that do not know about AFP cannot afford AFP um, and and need and need that support and that training so that there's still work to be done there um, and that's no secret right we discuss this in every chapter I still belong to the board I belong to two boards um, because I'm still so dedicated to AFP and the work that we do. Um, I belong to the AFP um, South Sound chapter, and I belong to the AFP Advancement Northwest chapter. So two boards, and we have these discussions all the time. So when I met Sanai and she encouraged me to join as a member for AFP and I had that sticker shock, she said, well, how about, how about this idea? What if you ask you your um, employer, your boss, your supervisor to, um, to support you um, because it will help. It will definitely help you in your profession. It will help you become a better fundraiser. Um, made sense to me, right? Unfortunately, as we also know in the nonprofit sector, 
what is one of the most common sort of objections to supporting our own staff, our own staff in their professional development? No budget. Sorry, Jennifer, but we just, we just do not have budget for that. What a disappointment. Um, and so, again, to this day, we still have work to do, right? Because I faced that objection when I had brought it up to my employer at the time. And, um, and so I had told Sanai and, um, and Sanai is also, not only is she an amazing fundraiser, but she's also a very tenacious and caring person. And she said, well, I have something to say about that. <laughs> so she marched herself. Well, she drove over to my office, got a car, came, came in through the doors, marched herself up the stairs and into the office of my supervisor and sat herself down, closed the door and had a talk with my boss. And I was just like, oh, oh my, oh my gosh. Um, number one, why would anybody even do that for me, right? Why would someone stick their neck out for me like that? Number two, like, I'm mortified. Like, my boss just told me no. Like, what makes you think that you can change your mind? Um, well, when that door opened back up, Sanai smiled at me and she said, congratulations, you are now a paid member of the AFP. Sanai Tokumura, thank you. Thank you so much. But she was the reason I became an AFP member for the first time because she was willing to stick her neck out for me as my mentor, but also as a caring individual and a very dedicated person to the profession so that I could have my membership covered by my employer. That really made an impression on me. And she has been an amazing mentor to me and so many fundraisers in our profession. But it also kind of like fits in with that story. It's like, you know, when you have that, that debt that you feel that you can't repay. Sanai did not do that because she expected something in return. But I knew from that moment on, I was like, this is what, this is what it is to, to give without expectation of receiving anything in return. This is what it means to pay it forward. This is what it means to be in the nonprofit sector, to, to, to make good things happen for a better world. And it happens one kindness at a time, one kindness at a time. And that was a kindness afforded to me. And so I continue to dedicate what I do to AFP for that reason. And it means a lot. AFP does provide training. AFP does provide those connections. AFP does provide the support. AFP does cost a lot too. So we need, we need all this support and training and, and connections and these relationships. Um, but we also need to continue to work to make it accessible and equitable for everybody. Um, 
And that's why I love AFP so much. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.